I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Please note, this podcast episode includes a conversation about sex and child abuse, violence, human trafficking, and other adult themes. This is not suitable for listeners under the age of 18. This discussion contains sensitive subjects and graphic content, which may be triggering or some may find disturbing. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. This is Evelyn. I am the creator, producer, and host of Reppin. Normally, there is an intro with music at the start of the show, but today, I wanted to just come speak with you. Many years ago, I had an eye-opening education when I began learning about the horrific epidemic of human trafficking. I learned what was happening, how it's happening, the effects. I learned who the consumers were and to whom it was happening to, many are children. And it's still something that haunts me. Then around that time, I heard about a young woman who was 13 when she was trafficked. And her story stayed with me through the years. And recently, I came across her important, incredible, raw memoir called I Cried to Dream Again. Now, I learned more about her story. She's mixed race, grew up in a poor and bad neighborhood with a single mother who had mental health and substance abuse issues, and she was subjected to endless brutal beatings. Her mother also brought home a parade of men 
who sexually abused her. With no rescue in sight, she tried to commit suicide five times by the time she was 13. School was her one escape. She was a good kid who got great grades. But one day on her way home, she was gang raped. She also met someone who showed her kindness and someone she thought was her savior. But in actuality, this would be the man who groomed and trafficked her for sex from the time she was 11 to 16 years old. At 16, Sarah came across another man, a local gangster who used and manipulated Sarah to rob and ultimately kill the man who trafficked her. Sarah went to trial and all of her experiences, her history of being abused, sold. Exploited by her trafficker was not allowed at her trial. And because of this, when she was 17, she was sentenced as an adult for life without parole. She was incarcerated until she was just shy of her 36th birthday. And recently she was pardoned. This is part one of a very special two-parter, and it will be followed with my conversation with her co-author, Corey Thomas. Her story is devastating, but it's not a story of despair. It's one of the most empowering, inspiring, and unbelievable stories of survival, courage, heart, goodness, a battle for freedom. And her story truly redefines what strength is. She shows you how you can move forward with pain, trauma, and how you can be an agent of change. Please welcome survivor, author, advocate, Sarah Cruzan. Sarah, first of all, thank you. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. You know, a little anxiety, a little like, ah, but I'm doing my best. I don't have any shoes on, so grounded. Awesome. I always feel like no shoes helps people. And just so you know, if you're ever in an Asian household, you should never have shoes in the house. Is that why they're always set outside the door? Always outside the door. Yeah. Yes. It's a big thing. So no shoes in the home. Gotcha. I have to first say congratulations on the book. You are someone I've long wanted to talk with, and I've been familiar with your story for a long time. After reading your book, it is one of the most powerful, important reads. It is an honest, raw story. The experiences that you have gone through have been horrific, but it is also an incredible, inspiring story of hope and courage and goodness. When you were growing up, you came from a very difficult home, to say the least, your mom had mental health issues. She had a substance abuse issue. And you were growing up in a place that really no child should ever grow up in. It was abusive physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually. Your mom has had a bunch of various men and boyfriends in the house that wasn't a healthy situation. So, you know, you grew up in a home that was filled with all of the elements that no child or home really should have. And you suffered unimaginable abuse on all levels. As a child, kind of didn't have a lot 
to say the least, to your advantage. Can you talk about how Gigi, the man who did groom you or find you first, trafficked you? You met him and he offered you ice cream and kindness. Can you talk about how those two were the most sort of seductive things for you and how he was very purposeful in how he lured you in and talk a little bit about you're a child. Mm -hmm. You know, you were somebody who did not have power or someone who felt invisible at the time because of all the things that you had suffered and grew up with. Can you talk about how ice cream and a little bit of attention and kindness was sort of the thing that opened the door for Gigi to kind of come in? You know, you use the word seductive. And I think at the time when I met George, which is Gigi, I didn't have any reference of what seduction was defined as. So I didn't have any understanding for one. Now he might have, right? Because he was older. He was more seasoned with the experience. Much more. I had no idea what seduction meant. So clueless, right? Right. I mean, what were you like under 13 at this point, right? So I, yeah, I was 11 when I was coming home from school and yeah, 11 years old. And I think that the nostalgia, which to this present moment, I'm, my brain, my body associates with is with the, the level of n- nostalgic comfort, you know, that he, he somehow was able to just craft and present. My house was to the left. Gigi was a house behind when he basically like, mm-hmm. hey, you know, he groomed me to get in the car for ice cream. Right. And I, I looked at my house. I looked at him. He had his really fancy car. He had on these gloves and his car like, broom, broom, like there was this purr to it. And it was this alluring draw that somehow I think attached to my subconscious. Right. That was first opened in the first five to seven years of my life. He was too sophisticated. Yeah. His alignment on how he showed up. So ice cream. Mm-hmm. Sarah. <laughs> You were like 11 or 10. You should just be getting gum out of your hair at that point. My point in bringing this up is you didn't have any acceptance or kindness at the time at home. And someone here, this guy who's very seasoned, he was very experienced and he knew exactly what he wanted and how to do it. But here's the thing. One of the misconceptions of people who are in the sex trade or have been trafficked is that that they have agency. Can you sort of address the misconception of people who are trafficked? So I think it's generational. I think that there's liars that show up that portray to be safe people and they're not safe people. You got to look at the circles. These circles are extremely sophisticated. And what happens in these circles of folks, rather they're friends or they're the community, right? It's an imprint of the universe. So the level of sophistication for those who are most prone to be sexually trafficked are individuals who are already traumatized in the family. They're broken. They are psychologically broken. And so their program happens in the first years of life up to five to seven. Right. And... That allows for opportunities at the second component when the brain opens up to observe information. 
follow the data. This is all I'm saying. It's like, yeah, people are so focused on data. Like it's generational yeah. and you don't realize that you're being offered up until you're in a space where you have grown adult men passing on their, their pain, right? I think as a child sex trafficking survivor, when you lay there in a motel, a dirty motel, when you're laying in this random hotel and you've got a man, a grown man, rather, it doesn't matter if they're black, they're white, they're brown, they're purple, they're pink, it don't matter. What their source of outcome of what they need to do is to release their trauma on you. And the only way that that trauma can be passed on is verbal abuse, mental abuse, psychological abuse, spiritual abuse, and physical abuse. And when you receive abuse laying on a bed that is warm, hot, assaultive, disgusting, right? You're like, well, damn, talk about messaging. Dude, like you just fiercely harmed your penis to ejaculate this sense of your trauma onto a child. How do you fix that? For the politicians who want to chime in, let's have this conversation. All right, mayors, city councilmen, all y'all, let's talk about it. So Gigi had two homes. He had a home in an unincorporated environment, okay, community, which, hello, hashtag me too. That's where I was living, unincorporated. Right. People, <laughs> look at that. Police don't show up mostly in unincorporated areas, okay? That's mostly for the community, right. okay? Oh, the community is going to take care of it. Then right. he had two homes, two homes in this unincorporated area in highbrow, middle-class peasant. And being a highbrow, middle-class peasant, you hitting all three. So Gigi showed up and was able to come in and how he was so a master in his craft was bought the house down the street. The piece of joint was right down the street and it could see my house, our house that we moved into. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So Gigi moved in down the street, across the street. He bought, I guess, the land and moved in a like a trailer home. Okay. Brought it in. So he's already exerting right. his power in a, in a community, but nobody knew that he had businesses and partnerships that was right across the bridge. So to me, I'm like, this is so sophisticated. Jeffrey Epstein, you know, it's a formula. That's the thing, right? Because you didn't have any of this. You've never been exposed to any of this. And again, you were a child. You were a child. Children, you know, need parents to make a decision on what kind of pancakes to eat, let alone, you know, forget about all these other things. Children are still developing. They don't have the ability or really the power to make decisions. And here is this man who comes into this neighborhood that is, you know, your neighborhood, and it's a rough neighborhood. And you had a lot of disadvantages. And I think that's putting it very, very kindly. You know, a very violent and broken home. So how can anybody fault you for being impressed or swayed by a man who is completely experienced in terms of grooming, who is methodical, who is purposeful? But you actually told me something offline that was really interesting, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about this, Sarah, is intergenerational trauma, going back to what you were saying. You told me, Gigi, actually, even though he was a trafficker, and I was like, he's awful, what he did to you and to many women, but you actually told me. He was actually trafficked himself. Can you talk about intergenerational trauma as well and how that plays into this whole cyclical, awful circle? Well, I think that, you know how like domestic violence, folks kind of like they use a domestic violence cycle, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, hello, red flag. This is a red flag. Okay, so let's look at that from a larger scale. Let's really look at how that's being used throughout our countries, globally, okay? There are very similar tactics that are being applied. Right. With Gigi, he was a child. And because his stock, you know, I'm going to be as raw as possible. We can edit this, but like... Listen, Sarah, this is your platform. (laughs) So please speak freely and share what you want. Okay, so I think because he was born biologically with a large penis, right? He had a stock that would be used to weaponize and buff break. You know, let's talk about that because he was a child. Instead of helping him understand the gift that he brought or if someone perceived it as a gift or if someone's going to see it as an assault weapon or a way to really nurture love. So I think in his upbringing... Maybe because of the cultural toxic situation and the post-traumatic slave syndrome that was continuously being passed on, 
he was considered the man because he had a large penis. Okay. And the woman who molested him trafficked him. A hundred percent. Yes. hundred percent. But in the black culture, okay, there is such bullshit and cognitive dissonance about how you're uplifted if you got money, you uplifted if you, you got the right shoes on, you got swag and your dick is long. Oh, okay, you you the one. And then what happens is the women tend to feel like, well, my ass is so big or my titties can produce, you know, the birth of the earth. No, 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 that's not healthy. You don't want to be that person because you've become that energy that doesn't produce love, but produces harm. Got it. When Gigi was molested, the sophistication of a woman, I understand. You got to stick with me for a second. I go go too far. I'm going to stop. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Men are like, I'm just here to show up and be, oh, you want me to do this? I do this. But, and the woman is seen as the sophisticated antagonist. You see what I'm saying? Let me just make sure I'm getting you right, because I think it's really important for me that I'm understanding you correctly. So what you're saying is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, please, okay? So Gigi was born well-endowed. He was molested by this woman. And in many ways, you're saying many things, and I think this is what I'm hearing. One, that intergenerational trauma because Gigi was a trafficker and he trafficked you because he was also trafficked and molested and abused. That's point one. Point two, you're saying between the men and the women, basically the abuse, although maybe have different methods or styles, they're kind of the same thing. They're, They're still doing the same thing. Absolutely. So in many ways that Gigi, even though he he was trafficked and he did traffic many women, you being one of them, or many children. Because he was trafficked, this is kind of what he knew. He knew that his manhood was, it was weaponized. He was never taught that that was something that you could use for love or care or passion. Sacred with love. Correct. It's a weaponized. Um, it was a moneymaker. Yes, it's a moneymaker. It's a business. And that in his world and how he was brought up, because money, stature, and the size of his manhood was sort of seen as more as a business entity and a a status or something that you can wield. Am I understanding you correctly on these multiple points here, Sarah? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yes. Because I have to tell you, when you first told me this about Gigi being uh, abused and molested himself and, and sort of that cycle continued, unfortunately, what struck me was this. I read your book. It is one of the most difficult, raw, but most powerful and important books that anyone and everyone should read. It's so amazing that you had this perspective, despite what this man had done to you or did to you, that you were still able to have this perspective and empathy. I think that's so incredible. Can you talk about how you were able to hold both of these? Here you are. You have this empathy and this ability to have understanding and this perspective of a man who trafficked you i think the moment that it happened the catalyst of awareness that broke through was when he took me to his safe space so his safe space was the dynasty suites for some reason and that kind of came out in the court but they didn't want that that was a motel right yeah it was the motel yep but he frequented it often 
But none of that information was brought to my trial. It was like, meh, who cares, right? <laughs> so who cares that he had trafficking and pimping and pandering charges 10 years prior so you look at the depth of sophistication that he brought and the court was like, yes. eh, we don't find that as relevant. Really? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's fucked up. When I saw his nature of vulnerability, his arrested development of his young boy was when, yes, I was his victim. Mm-hmm. And I remember laying, he laid me down on the bed and when he was aroused he was like i'm only going to give it to you halfway because i don't want to hurt you it was this like really depth moment of surge infused us together because his vulnerability identified with my vulnerability of fear and shame but he still sanctioned himself to connect my bones, because of my, because my trauma and my body's need to protect itself, it seized itself. It arrested, like, again, arrested development. I never grew hips. My body didn't expand. So when he presented the, 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 his girth, wasn't just physical. But you were saying you guys were fused in that regard because you guys were both vulnerable. Extremely. So I saw his young soul. I felt it. He had empathy. He was, it was almost like he regretted the fact that he had to follow through with these orders to destroy my soul. But it was almost as if he had to carry it out. But he wanted to do it with like, hey, I'm sorry. Right. And I remember just surrendering. I have to just say again, the fact that you had this awareness and perspective at such a young age when this violation was happening to you and still as a grown woman and as a person really shows the incredible depth and heart that you have, Sarah, the shit that you have gone through is unimaginable and horrific to say the least. But the fact that you still are able to maintain this perspective, I'm still completely speechless by the level of empathy, compassion and understanding that you have for a man who just broke you in so many ways in every way pretty much that you were still able to see this arrested development boy as you had called him and actually schooled me and corrected me and said hey listen this is a guy that he was trafficked but he was also molested and abused and this is sort of the cycle of trauma so now i stand corrected and i'm certainly going to look at things a little bit differently going back to what you said earlier and i think this cannot be underscored enough you were a child. You were a child in a very violent and abusive and broken home. He was obviously experienced, much older, very sophisticated, and he groomed you very methodically and strategically. He picked you up after school. He offered you things that you did not have and every child would want. Attention, kindness, acceptance, love, or what seemed to be love. So as a kid, not having any of these things, and here is someone who seemed to care about you. These are fundamental things that every human being wants. Who doesn't want this at any age, especially a child that never experienced it? And certainly you did not experience it. You experienced every kind of horror. So he picked you up from school. He impressed you with his car. 
he seemed to have wealth, status, and he seemed like he cared about you and saw you, made you feel like you had value. And that was the seduction. That was the thing that opened the door. He gave you the things that you were starved for. But again, to see that you still were able to have this perspective and empathy for him, that is just so striking to me to see you say amongst one of our many conversations is that you said, look, did you know that he was abused? Did you know he was molested? So now I'm aware, oh, he's a victim too. And he was kind of taught to put value in things that were not appropriate. I mean, that's like the hugest understatement of all time. Now, moving forward, you have been in prison. You shot and killed Gigi. This is sort of all in the book. Two men came into your life that sort of set you up to kill Gigi. You knew what you were doing was wrong, but you had been conditioned your whole life. Like, this is all you've known. You go to prison. You were 16, correct? When you went to jail and you were sentenced to life in jail. I was 17. I was 17. It's like a David and Goliath. I felt... Talk about that. So, yes. when When the situation happened and the trauma, the trauma violence explosion, it wasn't just mine. It was everybody's energy that was like there, right? Yes. Generational trauma exploded itself. Like it's like a supernova. That's what happened in that hotel room from my perspective. So it was like a David and Goliath. And I felt this deep remorse immediately after the trauma violence of energy had been transferred over. So that is like, okay, do the courts actually look at anybody who's transferring the energy and violence. Like there's not a way to like say, hey, oh, this person just woke up this morning and thought they're gonna be turned into a killer. No, it is a transference of energy. Right. And I think now that we're aware to see it's a lot, I think that it requires us to really have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, to say the very least, girl, one of the themes that I try to address on this show is that people are all going by what is or making judgments or basing what they think is fact based on sort of instant flashes of whatever they see on the surface. You said something in the book that I thought was like so on point. And certainly this made me realize another level of the issues that we need to deal with, not only with the justice system, but certainly in the trafficking arena. The courts and the judges and, and sort of the legal system doesn't see you beyond what you're being charged with. They don't see all of the other factors that come into this. You were were groomed, abused, raped, and violated your entire life pretty much up until this point. This level of violence and destruction and devastation. That's all you knew. Then you get set up by two other people who had ulterior motives, their own agenda, not great people to say the very least. What happened in that motel room when you killed Gigi, it was the supernova explosion But the judges and the courts, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, they did not allow a lot of evidence or Gigi's past or the information on the two other guys that were involved with setting you up to do this. They didn't let any of that information in. And then if that's not bad enough, you're judged, A, as an adult. I mean, you were 17. Biologically. Yes. But my point is, is that the judges and the court system and the legal system 
went on what was sort of on the surface and didn't allow or look at or consider all of the other factors that were critical in your situation. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, how can they if they've never had that type of personal experience? So they're not experts in my life or the life of Gigi or the John or the streets or poverty. If you're a judge and you've been appointed these positions, usually you too are groomed and uplifted. So you have a different form of grooming that allows you to not be really relatable to those that are considered the lower class or inhumane folks, right? right? So you're only coming from what you know. Right. I don't fault them. Just like I wrote my judge, I don't fault them. I said, hey, look, I understand you had a job to do. This is another point we're going to get to. The ability to forgive and again, to see all of these multiple points. I'm pissed off for you because it was like you were this kid who knew nothing but abuse. You were victimized again and again by the system here in this point, certainly before, you know, sexually and at home. You had no one to go to bat for you. No one gave you a hand up and no one took into consideration a wider perspective. And this is the eyes of justice. Like the legal system should be able to consider more things. And you still forgive the judge. I mean, there's so much that we can get into and we could talk about this for months. But I do want to get to when you went to prison, you were given a life sentence with no, like no parole at 17. Plus four years. Plus four. I had to do the four first in California. I had to do the four first. And then I start my life without parole. Oh, okay. I'm set straight. You said in your book, prison taught me everything good that I know today about patience, perseverance, love, and friendship. Can you talk about what you learned and what prison life was like and what you found there? You did not have structure at home. You didn't have acceptance, kindness, a family. Can you talk about what you found in prison? And listen, I'm skipping over a whole bulk of things. <laughs> That's going to make me really upset because to be sentenced to prison for life plus four for being set up, shooting your pimp. I'm not saying that shooting and killing Gigi wasn't bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying a lot more evidence should have been allowed in your trial and all of it should have been considered. But can you talk about what you found in prison and what prison life was like, the people that you came across? And can you talk about when you said in your book, that prison taught you everything that was good that you know now today. Expand on that thought. Well, yes, I did shoot what a lot of folks label as my pimp. However, it was another human being. And I hope that we can really align ourselves in that narrative because his mother was in the courtroom. He was someone's child. Right. Okay. So, and how trauma violence shows up. I think that what happens is society likes to throw it's trash or what's perceived as trash in a condensed area that's assigned and provided by the taxpayers' dollars so that people feel like they're doing, oh, we are, we are publicly safe. You cannot encapsulate, one, the human spirit, two, resilience, three, moral injury. You cannot incarcerate energy. You can incarcerate labels can't incarcerate energy. Right. And so one of the most profound moments of being incarcerated was that we are the, the worst of the worst, <laughs> society throwaways, 
However, what I saw was kindness, a beautiful depth of vulnerability, a richness of relationship that no debt dollar could ever, ever purchase. And, you know, I think that, you know, like Christ died and came back and he was like, what you gonna do to me now? What? I'm here. I'm loving you. What, what are you going to do? You can't kill me no more. Okay. So yeah, you can kill an oppressive physical body. Right. You cannot kill the human essence of determination. And I think that's what we see is in prison, everyone carrying a cross of somebody else's inability to be accountable for the harm that they've caused. But I don't think that some of the judges understood or the DAs understood. Thank you. <laughs> like you put us in a space where we get to talk you know when trash talks it it can decide where it goes because you understand the frequencies will always rise higher of anything that's dense so being in prison it was a dense situation it was like being thrown in the sewer but for some reason, like we had this beautiful opportunity to sit in our own shit and be like, how you doing today? You good? Oh, girl, you look good. You look clean. Well, you know what I mean? So that kind of like right. Right. accumulated and you see the beauty. So you found a lot of good things in prison. What other sorts of things did you find? Can you give me an example? There's good in the staff. There's good in the order, right? You know what? Tell me about the lieutenant. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. So I, yes, Lieutenant, he was on C yard. So C yard is, so in Chowchilla, there's A yard, Alpha yard, B yard, Bravo yard, C yard, Charlie yard, D yard, oh, Delta gotcha, yard. Gotcha, so gotcha. it's all military, okay. right? It's almost like us rejected kids gotcha. went to like military prison. Okay. Okay. You know, but what did, tell me about the Lieutenant and what they said to you. So there's, there's a few different lieutenants and I'm still in really, I have a really beautiful friendship with one now who's retired, Lieutenant Cooper. She is just a remarkable human being. So with Lieutenant Cooper in 2000, 2001, she was like coming to see me in ADSEG and I was like protesting and advocating. They would come to my door and they're like, <laughs> you're going to get a write up. And so she showed up and she pulled me out. I was in ADSEC, which is administrative segregation. And she's like, I need to talk to you. I said, okay. <laughs> so you were in trouble at that point, right? Mm -hmm. you, you had gotten into a, tr I think if I remember correctly, you had gotten into a quote unquote scuffle Ooh. and then you got in trouble because you were a little mouthy at that particular point, girl. Mouthy? <laughs> I was an advocate. Yeah. Right. I love that. It's, you, were in, you were a very active advocate at that point in prison. Mm -hmm. But the lieutenant came to you, and didn't they say, like, don't give up? Yes, Lieutenant Cooper. What did they say to you? Yeah, so Lieutenant Cooper, and she said to me, she had thrown all these 115s, because they was writing me 115s and stacking me up and, like, taking away everything from What's me. What's a 115? It's a rule violation, and it's like, oh, if you don't right. follow the rules, it's like a Because you were advocating, so you were breaking a lot of rules. I was. Okay, so you had a shit ton of these. So she's looking at you and she's seeing all these <laughs> violations from being an advocate. And what did she say to you? She said she led with the fact that her staff were stacking me. So she led the conversation basically telling me that her staff was violating some rules. So that kind of like, I'm going to have a conversation with you, right? 
And then she said, you and I have the same birthday. And there was something in her that she saw in me that I think that she admired and I admired in her. Okay. I was like, what are we going to do? So there was a connection. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And she said, you staying back here because I was in a domestic violent relationship at the time. So I was all caught up in that. And she said, you don't have to stay in here. You could go out to the yard, right? But you're like, you're, you're choosing to stay in prison. And I was like, okay, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm doing the right thing. But like she brought to the forefront that I don't have to always fight for the group, that there's the same amount of value and love and being able to fight for myself. And she said, now look, I'm going to put you on to go to ICC. If I go in there and I tell them that I'm going to release you and you say you are not going to be released. She said, that's it. So the ultimatum that she presented to me felt fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let me just get this right. So you were basically just going with the kindness. Okay, Sarah, mouthy. <laughs> you got a shit ton of violations here and you were in a ton of trouble. All right. By being mouthy and you are in prison for life at 17. And this woman, Lieutenant Cooper is her name. Yes. She told you to hang on and she showed belief in you that you could get out of jail. Correct. Mm -hmm. And she was willing to give you a break. Am I correct in this? Yes. Okay. So this was the first time that you, I think, really had someone believe in you and invested in you. Can you talk about what that feeling was like? Because you guys connected and you found this in prison. Yeah. So she was one of the folks that believed in me. And it turned into a very powerful relationship. Like I said, to this day, we are still in contact with each other. And we are friends, like outside of the arena of the department. Right. Which I think shows that when people really see into you, there's a beauty in that. And if they invest in you, there's a beauty in that, regardless of what negative label wants to be imposed on the person. You said in your book, commissioners may not believe that you are taking responsibility for the crime you committed. Most commonly, the commissioners are unable to accept that you've changed and will deny parole. Regardless of how long ago you entered that system, your accomplishments since that time and the original crime that brought you there mm -hmm. is really the only way you are defined. Now, this is the thing that I'm like trying to connect the dots, okay? You grew up never having structure, acceptance, and at the end of the day, even though children in general don't like rules, <laughs> children need structure to grow up, you know, and acceptance and belief and to be seen and to be nurtured. You go to prison, and for the first time in prison, you find a structure because, you know, there's like rules. And then you find a community who are other inmates who, like you said, you guys are both sitting in your own shit and talking about like, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. Right? And you find this community of people who are seeing you, Sarah, and accepting you for who you are and loving you and supporting you. And this Lieutenant Cooper is one of them. Can you talk about the amazing relationships and what other good you found in prison that you might not have had outside? One thing, I want to be 100% transparent. The book is a very powerful book. It allows for people to really like question, inquire, share, right? Open sourcing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not here to impose any kind of ideology. Of course not in any way, shape or form in the, in the book. But I also want people to know that I wrote the book with another person. 
And I also think that there's just more to talk about from my personal experience. Tons. Because tons. Yeah, I don't I'm not okay with the appropriating of, of one who identifies with being in the victim hood of culture. And I will push back on certain things only because I think Please. that it is very important for us to really like delve into Please. Are we yeah. creating the narrative that is the true voice of folks and allowing folks to truly have that space? So the book, it, it's not my full voice. Okay. It's my voice. It's not my full voice. Okay. Understood. I mean, it's impossible to capture a full voice. That would be in a collection of encyclopedias and that still wouldn't be enough. I guess my point is this. Throughout everything that you've gone through, your ability to have hope and kindness and empathy has never, I'm sure it's been tested. That's an understatement, but you never lost that. I think the fact that you found friends there mm -hmm. is an incredible thing. And that's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk about some other wonderful relationships that you did find and cultivate in prison that became your family? That's amazing. Like there's just Classy, you know, Miss B, Cheryl. There's so many, so many people over those 19 years. How did you find mm -hmm. strength and, and hope within this community? I think just having that hope, just having that sense of comfort. I think that's when you really get to see, meet people is when they've had everything taken away from them and you really see who they are as a person. Because folks hide behind their money or their labels or how they show up in society. But like when you're like a reject of society, you're like, oh, oh, no way. Like you used to like date an NFL player. Oh, like I was homeless, you know, you find this commonality. So you're like, all that stuff don't even matter anymore. And so that's when like those beautiful relationships actually can root because the soil's good. Right. Mm. I love that. That should be on a t-shirt somewhere, Sarah. <laughs> okay. The soil's good. The soil always has to be good for anything beautiful truly to grow. No. Now, you were also said something that I sort of wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about and address. You had talked about trust. Trust the folks that are not conditioned to trust. Can you speak to that and expand about what you meant and what you want people to know mm -hmm. about the idea or the principle of trust. Right. So there's two components that I want to highlight. One is that folks that come in that have never been incarcerated, but they invite folks who have been incarcerated to be at the table and to lead. There's a trust there, right? Okay. So trust that you trusted yourself to ask us to show up. Don't trust yourself always. Trust us. Okay. Okay. Because it's you and me. It's me and you. It's us. It's trusting your intuition to know that we understand what is needed to be the change. But don't trick us. Okay. Don't be like, hey, I trust you, but then I'm going to indoctrinate your stuff and appropriate it. Right. Because there's a different level of trust. And so the second part is, when you're in a condensed environment in prison, there's a socially constructed trust that continue that's concentrated. It's not only concentrated, it is categorized. Okay. You want to talk about like Monet, folks that create artwork, 
and you're like, oh my God, I'm willing to pay millions of dollars for this artwork because they can capture the depth. Well, we have the capacity to capture the depth of trust when trust isn't supposed to be even an opportunity. Tell me more about that. But so, so what that is, is like the culture, the climate, um, the integrity of the prison. Like I'm going to use CCWF and CIW as an example. So what's CCW, what, what is that? Central California Women's Facility, which is one of the largest gotcha. women's okay. prisons in the United States. Okay. The culture wasn't ran by CDCR. It was ran by us. We're gone. What has happened? The culture has declined. So if you're doing your job, you know, you hear people say, well, don't reinvent the wheel if the wheel's not broken. But if the wheel is, bro- is producing broken people, it's broken. Yeah. Okay. So, but if you've got folks, you got to look at the data. People want to collect data. So look at the data. Look at, look at who was there, who was doing what, and what was produced. If it's good and it's healthy and safe, continue that. If it's not, you got to look at what is the challenge. You've removed some of the, the pillars that created the healing components in the prison system. Mm-hmm. And um, is it intentional? You got to wonder at some point, are right. people really wanting to work together? Here's the other thing that I think I wanted to kind of get to. You continue to give back. You still are in touch with your family from prison, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. When you were in prison... There were a lot of children or kids or at-risk teens that wrote you. Yes. And you said, I think it was, uh, I'm going to paraphrase here. You were sitting on a bucket in your cell and you were using your bed, which is really like a table, to write them. Yes. And (laughs) they were trusting you with their secrets and their struggles of unimaginable and unspeakable experiences that unfortunately you have also experienced. And Mm -hmm. my point in asking you this is, you really took your role and responsibility of being a mentor and writing back to them Mm -hmm. very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that I want to get to is, Sarah, I think I've said this to you. After everything that you have gone through, I would be, I would want to just leave everything behind and not think about it. But you continue to work to give back. Can you talk about why that's important to you and what you're doing now with helping others? I hope that it's to build an army, not even an army, just to create a community so others can say, oh, this is really warm. This is a hallmark, right, to community building. And it's very intimate. And yes, there is a lot of responsibility. I don't think it is something that any one person can hold on their own. I think there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of letters that I still have that is almost like a, a, a museum. It can be put in a museum and it will tell its own story of how to show up, right? right. It was like being able to hold the space at that particular time for folks and children. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, where are they now? But I want to be able to pass that on to others and also honor that my heart needs a space to pull away and rebalance because I'm dysregulated at this point and it's killing me. So the trauma is not in my head. Logically, it's in my body now. So I know the next step is going to be disease or other things unless I like show up for myself. 
the way that I've been able to show up for a large population. How do you transfer that in a baton and say, okay, this was awesome. This is what helped. This is what worked. And then say, okay, go ahead, Yago. <laughs> I'm going to sit on the sidelines and pass out some water because I'm tired, you know. But every. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But every day, I think about them. I think about everybody every day. And then there's this like, how can you say thank you for allowing me and trusting the space that at that particular time, I was a safe person That's for you? That's so huge that you see that they trusted you with their story and space and you take it on. How do you keep on keeping on? It, listen, the world is hard. World is hard for all of us. But to say that to you would be offensive. <laughs> if you did nothing else but survive and just live, that would be an enormous accomplishment. But you're not just doing that. You're out there advocating for other people. You're not being mouthy. <laughs> You're helping others. There's a law named after you, right? You're continuing to write back. You're continuing to connect with the people in the correctional system. You're working to change perspectives. You're working to change and advocate for people who have been trafficked, widen people's perspectives, and to have multiple conversations. And going back to your point, and I second this, and I want to also make sure I'm clear on this. There's no way that you and I on this conversation, or even if we talked for a week for 10 hours straight, we can capture all of the different voices and all of you. It's impossible for anyone to do that really un unless we walk in your shoes. My point is there's no way to touch upon all the different points of your voice, your story, and your experience, and your person. It's impossible. We're just at the tip of the iceberg here, and I completely acknowledge that. And I want you to know that I'm not trying to impose one view versus the other or appropriate it in any way, shape, or form. Right. But because of just time constraints and everything else, we're just kind of focusing on a few experiences. But the fact that you continue to give back and not just do your thing is amazing. Sweet. I do my thing in my house. <laughs> oh, I know you do. Yeah. You're still advocating for other people. I won't stop. I, I can't stop. I, I won't stop. Why? Because I'm them and they're me and that's community, you know? That's what I'm saying. I think the thing that I'm, I'm going to remember, many things, many lessons, is that no one gave you a chance. No one gave you a hand up. No one saw you. No one believed in you when you were a kid. You had every disadvantage. And here you are giving everyone else a hand up, building everybody else up. Yeah. Here you are hopeful, although that might've been tested. And this is sort of the things that I wanted to kind of circle back on Sarah. You had every reason to be broken and to stay broken and to be hopeless and to be unkind. You had every reason to continue the cycle that intergenerational trauma. And yet, here you are. You're building a community. You're giving a hand up. You're giving people what you didn't have. You're breaking the cycle. There's no way I can embody and, and voice everything that I'm feeling and everything that you're saying. So please know that that's not what I'm trying to do. I am just saying that I, from what our conversations and our time together that's one of the many things that I'm just completely fucking impressed by and humbled by.
that you were victimized multiple times on so many fronts from your mother, from these two men that came into your life that set you up to Gigi, despite the fact that he was trafficked to the system. I mean, I can go on and on and on. You were brutalized, but here you are. You continue to give what you did not have. That's fucking incredible. I hope you know that. Okay. <laughs> There's so many people in this world that have infinitely more than you and hasn't faced a fifth of what you've had to go through and don't give back. You came out from the darkest of places and you're continuing to give back. I want to go back to a couple of things also. You were in prison at 17 for life plus four. Okay. okay. And you watched TV, right? And you said that for the first time, sort of said out loud for really no reason. Right. <laughs> that you knew you were going to get out. <laughs> right? It was faith. It was 100% faith. Talk to me about that. Okay. What hit so you? I- what happened at that moment? <laughs> tell, tell to all audiences. Yeah. yeah. No, it was awesome. I was in the room and my two good friends, one of my best friends, Tabitha and her sister, they both had life without parole. And Tabitha had life without parole like four times over and she didn't even, she didn't commit the crime. So we're all, you know, just there and sharing space. And I remember sitting up and the show came on and it was about these lawyers, these pro bono lawyers that took on cases that were like really compelling and they were like seeing these injustices. And it was about a young kid. He was a kid, he was a juvenile and he committed this crime. And the, the lawyers are like, no, we are not okay with this. So like they leave and like that was their whole job of glory was to get this kid out of prison, right? Like it was like, yes, they have a mission, you know? Right. And I remember watching that show and I was like, girl, one day lawyers are going to come and they're going to get me out of prison and they're going to see that my case is, you know, injustice too. And I'm going to go home. And my friend Tabitha was like, she was a white girl, but she was blacker than all. You know, she had the soul and culture of it all. She got up. She was like, girl, please. Ain't nobody going, you know. And she just thought I was so vulnerable and so gullible. Looked at the Crazy. life. Yeah, she thought, oh, something was wrong with me. And I was like, nope, mm-mm. you say what you want. <laughs> While she's taking her little behind to the bathroom and she closed the door and I was like, uh-huh. I'm going to get out. And then I'm going to come back and get everybody else out too. It was said with such a, like, yeah, I don't care what. Conviction. Yeah. And those kind of moments became... I guess a healing habit of hope. And so I practiced that. Tell me more. So I practiced the healing habit of hope and, and would want to function with folks at that high vibing space. Let's dance. Let's create. Let's hope. Let's create vision boards, you know, and yeah. to see it unfold the way that it did. And to see that so many of my friends that I used to hold space with are home now that have life without parole, or just to see that, it's a remarkable moment that's happening. Like talk about dominoes. It's awesome. You were in jail for life plus four and you watch a TV show and you Mm -hmm. say out loud with complete belief that you're going to get out. But that was amazing because throughout everything, again, another example here of your hope, right? Mm -hmm. Here you are saying, yo, I'm going to get out based on a a clip that you're watching on TV. People thinking you're, you're batshit crazy. I didn't care about what people thought. I had faith. I was like, you know what? Hey, look, no. And then I had told them too. I was like, watch the day that I get out. I, I started saying this too. I started, I started putting it out there. And I said, well, the day I, when I get a ducket to go home, I'm going to do cartwheels across 
the prison yard and I would say it and say it and say it and you know to this day you can go back and check people who I was in the prison with and they'd be like yeah Sarah's crazy as hell I don't know I, I don't know but she got out <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody else started following. And you did do cartwheels. I did do the cartwheels. Yeah, we had a party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's the other thing. So, again, w- the contrast between what you didn't have when you were before prison mm-hmm. and versus what you did have in prison, mm-hmm. I think through all of this, you always had hope. Oh, 100%. In, and you found it in different ways. Yes. Right? Yes. So, you talked a little bit about stretching flags. Let people know what the fuck stretching flags is and sort of why that was significant to you. So we were prison industry authority, the PIA, okay, the CCPOA, they know they invested it. It's like, you know, slave labor. But like we in there, we making their products, (laughs) you know, we're like making all the clothes for the inmates or the folks that are in prison, like I worked in textiles. So I worked in a factory. Right. I started out working for Miss Hagemeister May. Ooh, that lady was amazing and she loved wiener dogs so anyway they put me they i was hand selected to help her she was a supervisor of this huge factory inside the prison of over a hundred and something people <laughs> i laughed because she was so disorganized and my job was to organize her and i'm like this does not go on my resume wow. for the future okay so yeah <laughs> okay crack acid on i'm going to work and get there and i'm organizing her desk and you know and and what was interesting was our so you got to stick with me because it's a beautiful story of how healing and love shows up so she was crumply her hair she would comb her hair and she's all frumpled and angry you know coming into work and all she wanted to talk about was her wiener dogs and show the pictures of her wiener dogs i'm like okay show me more pictures of your dogs every day but can you organize this because we need this order done okay so i would have her desk all set up for her right and here she comes well the day that she asked she had a uh, she was frustrated about her hair and she was about to cry and she was like cruise on right like she would call me like that she'd say cruise on come in here and i'm like yes and she would say can you do my hair i said yeah but i thought whoa right it just kind of put so much into perspective about the whole slave narrative and the need to feel safe and to trust those that you're told not to trust, right? So I was doing her hair. I remember I felt her body just relax. And I thought, my God, like this poor woman, she comes and she does her job. But there was a sense of love and safety that she knew, like there was a trust with me to come in and do her hair. So what that did was it built this really remarkable relationship and next thing you know, I'm being moved into a managerial position and she's like, cruise on, can you do this? And she would come looking for me, right? So now I'm like this huge obligation. But then next thing you know, I was in charge of, you know, like a, a crew of women and we had to stretch the flags mm-hmm. and those flags were going to the courts. They were going to the governor's office. They were going to the schools. They were going to anyone who would order a U.S. Starfield flag we're going to government entities. So I, you were literally stretching a flag. The material. Yes, I had to order the material. So I learned how to order the material, get the quotes. So I was a flag stretcher. Yeah. And then I was also the lead for the crew in the back where we would run the flags, do ordering and printing. So I would be stretching up to 100 flags 
a day. The way that the flags had to be stretched were so meticulous. The squares in the material had to align. Okay, <laughs> what's the significance of that? You said stretching flags was not as easy as it sounds. No. Now, if you can stretch a flag, <laughs> which now you can, can you teach us how to fold a fitted bed sheet? No. Okay, so you no. can't even figure that out. Okay, I don't feel so bad. Mm -mm. But the significance of this flag for me was, again, it's another example of where you found hope. Yes. Can you talk about that when you were folding this, what did it represent to you? I took it very serious and I was really dedicated and I was like, well, this is a piece of me. This is a piece of us. This is a piece of who we are. So this is going to go somewhere and the flag is going to show up somewhere and it's going to wave and be free in the air, you know, and represent not only the United States, but our government entities. So it was like, yes, I want them to know that we put this flag together and with love. And it sent out a piece of us. It's almost like an SOS, of enslaved children. Right. Can't you see us waving at the flag? Right. So I will never look at a flag the same way again. And I will never think about any of these things the same way again. What would you want people to know I want to open the door and give you the opportunity to speak, okay? Okay. What would you want people to know about trafficking or your story or what they can do? I think when it comes to trafficking, to develop an individualized, intimate relationship with the person who you would like to help create a healing space. Pick one survivor, just one. Invest in that person, their family could go a lot further and create a, a quicker healing component as opposed to just relying on sometimes the organizations to do it. It's an intimate thing. There was intimate violations. So you want to kind of make the healing intimate as well. Listen, clarification, when you say invest in a survivor, mm -hmm. what do you mean by invest in a survivor versus an organization? What kind of investment? Develop a relationship, pick one person. If you have an organization and they're helping all these folks, hey, who are you helping? I would like a list of people that you're helping. Okay, can I get a little bit more background about the individuals that you're helping? I want to go ahead and invest my time, my experience, my faith, my love in this family. One, can I have one? Just one. And then do it that way because it's remarkable. It doesn't require a lot to invest in one person, but it does require a lot and it creates too much chaos when it's too big. And to be clear, because when people hear investment, they think money, but you're talking about nurturing relationships. Mm -hmm. How you doing? You know, dial a grandma, you know, <laughs> dial a dad. Hey, how you doing? I just wanted to see if I can tap in with you today. You know, hey, I got some advice for you. Hey, this is happening. Can you help me understand why am I feeling this way? You know, it kind of like neutralizes and then also brings in the humanity factor of people. And a lot of folks who are survivors of abuse, they're adults. They're, they're children, but they're also adults and they need love. What little you were shown, the lack of humanity mm -hmm. as a kid that you had. You have never, ever lost your sense of humanity mm -hmm. and kindness. I mean, there's so much that I wanted to get to that we're not going to be able to have time your sense of forgiveness to people. I'll just sort of synopsize this one point. And again, this does not even remotely come close to the depths of your story and experiences in your voice. But your sense of forgiveness is another thing that I is just fucking amazing. 
you, I think, briefly had a conversation or you did have a conversation with someone who had molested and raped you Mm -hmm. and you forgave him. Again, this is another marker of the incredible human being and spirit that is really what legends are made of, Sarah. Your sense of forgiveness and your humanity Mm -hmm. never, again, was tested, to say the least, and should have been broken by any accounts. But your sense of humanity, your sense of compassion and empathy and goodness is what fucking superheroes are made out of, Sarah. Don't cry, love. You're gonna make me cry, and I don't. I have an ugly cry. Oh, that's good. I have like an ugly cry. I get like congested in my, and then I just can't talk to anybody. But here's the thing: people talk the talk about caring and compassion, and forgiveness, and those are hard things to do for a multitude of reasons. Right. right? You started in a place as a child in a completely abusive, violent home. You were given nothing. People were taking from you. And your sense of humanity and hope and community, though tested and should have been broken at any point, by every point and every turn, you are still out in front giving back to people. And I will never forget that. And I want to read this because I don't want to fuck this up. I'm going to refer to the book. And again, I know that this isn't all of you. What I have learned is that you can't simply erase the bad moments in your life. You can ignore them and pretend they didn't exist, but I now know that when you try and deny the facts of your life, they lie dormant until they explode in unforeseen ways and at inopportune moments. I've come to realize to put the hurt behind me, I must first acknowledge it. To exercise it, I must expose it. (laughs) I must honestly share the reasons for that shame I have felt about being me. And I believe in doing that, I may find reasons to be proud of myself too. That hit me super hard. (laughs) We've only met a few times, but I am so fucking proud of you. And I hope that you can have a moment to look at the path that you've been on and you've come from and all the devastation and the fact that you're out in front still advocating for others. You never lost hope. And I hope that you have found many reasons to be proud of yourself. So listen, I'm going to ask you to sign us off. Will you let me know who you are and what you represent? My name is Sarah Jessamy Cruzan, and my heart represents brave hope, bold faith, and curious love. That is who I am. Human trafficking, abuse, exploitation, violence. It's happening right in front of us. Please don't turn away. Ignoring it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Each of us can make a difference in the world and in one another's lives. I can't thank Sarah Cruzon enough for her trust and time to speak with me, for showing me her light, her heart, and her courage. And despite the mind-blowing devastation she has suffered, Sarah's still out in front, fighting for others and giving others a hand up. Now, I've had the great opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Sarah in person, and I can tell you that when the world victimized her on every level and showed her nothing but brutality, 
I can tell you, Sarah is a lovely, sweet, funny, big-hearted woman who is showing others the kindness, justice, and acceptance that she did not receive. Sarah, you are amazing. And I encourage everyone to read I Cried to Dream Again. It really is one of the most important books. And I'm going to have a link for you to pick it up in the show description. Now, if you need help or know of someone who does, there will be a list of links and resources that are included in the episode description. Please take care and reach out to those resources and get help. I will also have links to organizations where you can learn more and make a difference. Thank you also to Sarah's wonderful team who helped bring this episode to fruition. On the next episode of Reppin, it will be part two with Sarah's co-author, Corey Thomas, where we're going to learn more about Sarah's story, Corey's experiences of writing this amazing book, and Corey's going to share some behind-the-scenes stories and what she's learned from Sarah. Thank you for listening. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, please stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.